Get them fired up and get them to the staging lanes, baby, because Eighth Mile Apparel is now carrying Glowing Bracket Racing merch. Hats, t-shirts, hoodies, and much more can be yours today by visiting EighthMileApparel.com. We appreciate each and every one of you guys supporting the Glowing Bracket Racing YouTube and Facebook pages. What's up, everybody? GBR is back. We missed last week, but we're back with you now. George had a little bit of a sickness, and I had a little bit of a hiatus as well, so it kind of all worked out. We're getting ready to watch some racing this weekend. I think Motor Mania is finally going to be live. It's February 6, 2024, episode 143 of the Going Bracket Racing Live show, coming to you every single Tuesday, 5 Eastern, 4 Central Time on YouTube, Facebook, and it obviously goes out to your favorite podcast platform afterwards whenever i can get it up we don't know when that is but it usually is about five six days afterwards if you want to participate in the live chat you always need to come up here gbr live brought to you by and thanks to tsr racing products brg 3d printed parts syntax printing out there in temple texas driven racing oil where you can use the code gbr10 get yourself 10 percent off your order proform parts visit proformparts.com Get your carburetors, alternators, starters, distributors, radiators, and much, much more. Crew Chief Pro software to get those dial-ins in order. You got a brand new combination this year. Crew Chief Pro will get it figured out for you before you can. I promise you that. And you notice I got this chain on right here. Can you see that, George? Is that in the frame? We got these new tree chopper shirts. It's in there. Yeah. <laughs> we, we finally got the tree chopper shirts available on eighthmileapparel.com. I got to get some over to Blaine Parrish and Thomas Davis for winning the Morton Brothers practice tree race the other night. I got them sitting on my desk right now. I told them I was going to send it to the Cupid race. The Cupid race at Galat. That's the first race of the year for all of us. And uh, Or I could just bring them over to Blaine's house. He just has to text me or something. <laughs> so we'll see how it goes, man. But I... I don't want to take up a whole lot of time, man, because we're going to have a big, big show, probably one of the biggest shows we've had since Brett Kepner, because this is kind of the protege of Brett Kepner, if I do say so myself. And I think he might say that as well. So let's get on Brian Loans. How are we yeah, doing, man. guys? Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, man, that's a high honor. I appreciate that. Brett is a good friend and somebody that I certainly uh, respect and admire everything he's done in his career for sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, we had Brett on. We probably need to. We we still need to make sure we have a part two, three, oh yeah, four, um, five, possibly yeah, five. I think Brett we Kepner. can have plenty of parts with uh with Brett. So Kepner. basically, you had you had a typical con phone conversation with Brett Kepner. That is that normally when you get on the phone with him, it requires a, a multitude of of post calls to finish up the original call. Yeah. Oh, what were we talking about again? Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> one of those moments. Yeah, it definitely was a, a heck of an episode, Casey. It's hard to believe that was almost two years ago. 
uh, now, I believe. So geez, we've been at it for a while here on, on going bracket race community. Yeah, we gotta we gotta get that one back, man. But as we get into the show, guys, this is a we'll treat it as much as we can as open discussion uh, with sure. Brian here, and maybe we can get a few of your questions in. So if you got them. Put them in that chat. You know what to do. And uh, I'll do the best I can to monitor them and, and get them out. As always here at Going Bracket Racing Community, we like to figure out how it all got started. So, Brian, coming live from you at GBR, how did you get started in drag racing? It was a very successful worker lease program from prison. I'm glad. Uh, no, it was for me, it was, uh, you know, growing up as a kid, um, uh, I want, my dad was a drag racer, a bracket racer through the seventies. Um, and when I came along in the early eighties, uh, he stepped away from the race cars, but was still into hot rods and muscle cars and stuff. Um, and we watched drag racing every week and it was just something we did. We got national drags to the, to the house, a bunch of car magazines every month. So for me, uh, my, you know, drag racing early education was the occasional trip to the racetrack, but most of it, you know, reading National Dragster and about Kenny Bernstein and Joe Amato and these guys named the Edmonds that were seemed to be pretty good at drag racing or the Richardsons rather that seemed to be pretty good at drag racing back in the day and still pretty good at drag racing today. So, um, you know, that for me was really how I got into it. And of course, then I got older, um, had a driver's license and was going to test in two nights and started working at, you know, New England Dragway in the tech department was announced at Lebanon Valley in New York. And, you know, that's really what kind of put me on the path to uh, to where I'm at today. But yeah, man, first my first exposure to it was Diamond P Sports. And Dave, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. That's and that was the best. And I'm glad on on Roku, if all of you don't know, you can watch a lot of the old NHRA stuff on there from Diamond P, which is it's great. Me and me and my son watch that on the weekends. He might not remember it quite yet, but that's what we do. But I want to talk a little bit about your uh career progression man because massachusetts doesn't scream drag racing to a lot of people and i want to talk a little bit about bankshift.com because sure. a lot of people know about that but they don't yeah. realize you know a lot of people think that's chad reynolds deal but that's chad reynolds and brian loans yes yeah in that whole deal yeah so we founded uh it was actually to start it in 2008 it was myself david freiberger and chad reynolds so okay. freiberger had left hot rod magazine to start a website called car junkie tv which was him and chad and if they had started it like three years later it would have been a huge success it was like a super video heavy website um and it had a lot of uh some private equity investors in it well the economy tanked um at the end of 2008 away went the private investors david actually went back to the publishing company and you know, kind of turned over what was in Car Junkie TV to Chad and I because um, I had worked with David doing some content and stuff with the other website. There was no assets per se. And he's just like, if you guys want this, you can have it. And so um, we took it and, and grew it into, you know, a pretty successful blog site. It still goes every day. It's still, I still wake up in the morning and bang some content out every morning. So does Chad. And we live streamed a lot of stuff over the course of years. Don't do as much of that anymore per se, but, um, you know, it was neat to be in those early years of the live streaming stuff. Um, for me, you know, I, I worked regular jobs. I got out of college. I worked regular jobs for 10 years as I was doing all this stuff on the side. Like I was freelancing for Bobby Bennett. I was writing for a bunch of different magazines. I was taking working at Epping pretty much on the weekends. And then I started working for IHRA. Um, I mean, literally, I would be like hiding in the bathroom of IHRA national events, taking work calls and like being on conference calls when I was supposed to be in the office. I had a multitude of distant family members pass away uh, over the course of my actual employment. I got my third aunt's cousin died. I, I got to get out for the weekend and go do this. Um, I actually announced a national event at Epping one time. 
the ITRA national event at Epping, I went into my office in the morning, uh, told them I was visiting customers, left, changed into my ITRA uniform, went and announced the whole day of qualifying, changed back into my work clothes and drove back in at like seven o'clock that night to check to check the drivers. And I was managing truck fleets to check the drivers back in. So, um, yeah, so it's it's it, it was a it was a long <laughs> it was a long and sometimes interesting road for sure. So how does all of that inevitably lead to NHRA's main guy? Man, so that that story is pretty interesting, and and um, some of you have heard it, maybe some of you haven't. But so I announced for IHRA in the national event level until about 2011, and at that time the series had just kind of it went away. It wasn't as fun anymore. Like when when Bill Bader Senior owned it. It was a friggin' riot to work there. It was great. Like we had a lot of attitude, a lot of pride. We really were a um, kind of little brother to the NHRA, and we'd poke them in the side with sticks. I mean, it was a really fun place to go. Innovative, uh, very sportsman centric. It was very cool. Over the course of time, it got sold. Things change anyway. So I, I step away from that at like 2010, 2011, and I'm just I kind of at that point decided I I accomplished what I was going to accomplish. I thought, hey, listen, I, I became a national event announcer. I was happy with what I'd done. And then the um, New England Dragway, I was just working there on the weekends and doing some regional stuff. New England Dragway switched sanction. And so in 2012, Steve Gibbs came to the track to look at the pits, to lay the pits out for what was going to be the first New England Hot Rod reunion. I happened to be calling whatever was going on that day. And he came to the tower and he said, hey, well, you want to come next year and do my national hot rod reunion in Bowling Green, Kentucky? I said, yeah. I mean, I love nostalgia drag racing, love the history of the sport. I'm like, I'm in. Fast forward to that event. That event happens in early June of 2013. As I'm at the racetrack in Bowling Green, Bob Fry walks into the race control room. And I'm like, damn, I never met Bob before. I knew who he was. I idolized the guy. He kind of waved and went off and did his thing. Like two hours later, he walks back in and he goes, uh, who the hell are you? Like, who are you? And so... This was the cosmic part of the whole story. The following weekend was going to be the first NHRA national event at New England Dragway. So Bob Fry left Bowling Green, called this guy, Jerry Archambault, who then worked for the NHRA, and said, this guy needs a tryout. Like, this guy, you got to hear this guy. And so that next weekend, I was in my home tower calling Supergas and Superstock and Supercomp, and it was the best tryout in the world because I had all the answers to the test. Like every guy that rolled up, yeah. like, Oh, this guy actually knew who they were. He's got three daughters and, and they're his sons engaged. And it was like, wow. And it was just like, it was pretty amazing. And to me, like that connection with, with Bob Fry, like, you know, nothing's cooler than that for a guy like him to, to look at you and say, man, somebody needs to hear you. So that's, Oh the, yeah, man. Bob story. Fry, quite possibly yeah. in my opinion, greatest announcer of all time. Absolutely. Mount Rushmore guy, hundred percent of Mount Rushmore guy. Wow. So, yeah. And so then, uh, you know, the 2014 season, I did like five or six events and then 2015, I started doing the whole tour and, um, it's been going like gangbuster since. Ever since, ever since. Definitely, uh, very good to get on and, and actually have really good commentary behind what's actually happening at the racetrack. Uh, on the NHRA days live on uh, Fox Sports. So a lot different to being live on GBR, guys. I'm pretty sure it, it might wide feel open. the same, but geez. wide open. Wide open. <laughs> and I've I've really tried hard over the years to like maintain, you know, do as much outside stuff as I can, you know, whether it's some of the small tire stuff. Um obviously I just did US Street Nationals and the Snowbirds and Outlaw Pro Mod stuff. Um you know, haven't been up there. Me and Bob Unkerfer called the the big million dollar SFG race that happened up in 2020 up in up in Michigan. So I really honestly try to be 
um, as in in as many facets of drag racing as I can be. I think that is why and one I love the the whole sport, but two it just keeps me keeps me in a good place that I can understand what I'm looking at. Hey, quite interesting and a perfect segue. You mentioned uh, SFG uh, one. I believe you said 1.1 million was the one you yeah. actually went to a yeah, historic very- event for sure. Yeah. And my question uh, for the next question we I was going to ask here is what is the biggest thing uh, that you've been part of in drag racing for yourself and as well as maybe just being a part of historically? Man, uh, that's a great that's a great question. And and so many of these things to me, so many of these things have like their own place. Like I remember um, Outlaw Streetcar Union, the Tyler Cross Nose race up in Virginia a few years ago. We were getting into eliminations, rains on Sunday, pushed to Monday. And so I remember calling at the time, it was a, a side-by-side race between Stevie Fast and David Reese. And it was like a 350 and a 352 on radials, which then, I mean, that, it was the quickest side-by-side pass ever. And I'm sure it's still probably up there as one of the quickest side-by-sides. That was unbelievable. John Force's 150th, that was unreal. Doug Coletta's championship. But I'll be honest with you, Steve Cisco in the middle of the freaking night in that little Chevy two pulling wheelies and knocking people off and then winning that race will forever be a top five for me. That was when you look at, you know, you have to be knowledgeable of what you're looking at as everybody watching this is. But when you go pound for pound through the people who were in that facility that weekend and what he was in for a car, which obviously was a good car, but it is, as you guys well know, that is not the car you win a million dollars with at one of these things. And it was broken, turns out. Right. It was. The rear end was broken. <laughs> and then he gets in He gets in another car the next day. People forget that he won the next day. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> just, a, just a little hundred grander. Yeah. Uh, just so a hundred. That, you know, to me, that was great. The, the moment when he won that race, he drove the car back up the racetrack and it was clunking and chunking and banging its whole way up. Cause yeah, I think the ring gear, they chewed a couple of teeth off the thing, but everybody swarmed them. Um, it was uh, some ungodly hour of the night, but it was to me, that was like, that's a top five one for me ever. Cause that was unreal. Wow. Well, it's just, it's crazy to think that a sport and, and like you said, that's, that's a car that should not be winning a million dollars. It's essentially, you know, that car, I mean, it was a very nice race car, but let's just say in the best day, that car might be worth $45,000, right. you know? And, uh, but the thing is, is it's like, you would think a top fuel dragster would be what you need to win a million dollars. But in reality, you could buy that car 20 times with what yeah. he just won. And the man's name escapes me, but the guy he raced in the final was like a local Michigan racer, too. It was not, necess- not necessarily yeah. one of the big marks. Orange, orange and black dragster, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Man, some with a B, I feel like. And, and he was the guy, and it wasn't like some fluke. I mean, he was very well known in that region, yeah. in that area, and I think he had won. He was doubled. He was doubled very late in the race. Right. Yeah. Uh, Between that and the the other memory I'll I'll have, uh, among others, working with Uncle for Bob. uh, I worked with Bob for years in the IHRA and and just a spectacular man. And it's sad that he's gone. But um, there was a guy that had a a silverish, let's call it grayish uh, G-body cutlass that was just, I mean, it was it was a bracket bomber. Like I look at that car and it's like, man, some some dude's rolling in an open trailer and this is how he goes racing. I love him for it. He came up to the tower and he had gone down to 16 or 32 cars. Like the split was real money, like real money. And he walked in and he's like, Hey, I, you know, I didn't even go to the split meeting because I thought I was going to throw up. He's like, I've been so nervous. He's like, I, I, I need to know how much I won. 
and I believe he had won $100,000. He had gone deep enough that his portion of the split was a hundred grand and the guy started weeping. I mean, that to me, that, that kind of struck a nerve with me too, because it was, you know, you hear about the life changing money and then this and that, and I get it. But like, when you see like a normal, a normal dude who God only knows if this guy had ever won a local bracket race in his life comes up and somebody tells him you just pulled home six figures on a car that makes Cisco's car look like a million dollars. Right. You know, that's, that's for real. Yeah. Hey, yeah, by the man. way, the name of the uh, the driver next to him was Bill Swain. Thanks to Bill uh, Swain. Yeah, little... Billy Swain. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, man. The uh, that's that's the thing about bracket racing nowadays is that if it's your day, like it can legitimately change your life. It's there are so many things. For example, me and George, right before the show started, we were talking to our buddy Dylan Champion, who's commenting right here, um, and he's like, "Man, I'm going to try to run VMP's triple threat this year." I don't know how it's going to go, but but we'll see what happens. But, I mean, the thing is, first of all, you don't know if you're not there. Second right. of all, bracket racing nowadays, I mean, you can legitimately win enough money where, you know, maybe you can't buy a house with it, but you could pay your house off with it. Right. You know, and, and imagine how much money you would have. George and I were just talking about this earlier today. Imagine how much money you'd have if you just didn't have a house payment. How much easier would life be if you didn't have rent, didn't have a house payment? I mean, it would be life-changing. But I digress. We're talking about the U.S. Street Nationals just a second ago. Sure. And I want to talk about 300-mile-an-hour door slammers because a couple years ago, and it may be a little bit too – it may have been a little bit too soon a couple years ago, but I had said when I was watching Steve Jackson test his car in Outlaw Trim, I said, man – how long is it going to be until we can see a heads up grudge race between somebody like Steve Jackson who would do it and yeah. a fuel funny car? Yeah. Because fuel funny cars run like three teens, three twenties to the to the eighth. Yeah. Dude, we're getting real close. Turbo Todd, five fourteen to the quarter, letting off I think at a thousand foot supposedly because the windshield was collapsing. Yeah. Mark Mickey said on uh, actually on Stevie Jackson's Stevie and Lyle's podcast. Uh, shake and bake show i think mark mickey said last week that whenever jose went 535 in his car the wind pressure physically cracked the fenders so yeah. i mean dude have i mean just flat out i guess i'll just say it have have or will door cars become a contender for the fanfare of the nitro wrecks you know i think there's a couple a couple things to, to address there the first one is your concept of the of the door car versus the nitro funny car thing so uh, a little bit off track, but I'll take it back to where we started in a second. Several years ago, I did a show on Motor Trend called Put Up or Shut Up. And you can find it. You can watch it on Amazon or whatever. It's all posted now. But it was a show where we would ha- we would race dissimilar things that ran close to the same times. So we did drag racing episodes, stock car episodes. We put motorcycles on nitro motorcycles on dirt. We drag raced pulling tractors. Like we did all kinds of wild stuff. Wow. It when The season that was going to happen next, before when the show got canceled, was – we had an episode we were going to make, and Cruz Pedregon had agreed to do it with us. We had talked to Bob, Bob Brockmeyer to do the, the programming on it. We were going to run heads up Cruz Pedregon against Stevie Fast Jackson. Now, this was the time when radial cars were running um, – there when radial cars were running uh, in like the three – I want to say the probably the three – let's call it 380s or something like that. Basically, we were going to set it up where the radial car uh, – where I should – where the funny car ran to 1,000 feet. They would leave heads up, and the funny car – finish line was a thousand feet and the radial finish line was eighth mile oh. and we were going to run them off an unstaggered tree but the finish line distance was staggered show got canceled we never got to do it but that would have been that would have been a crowning life achievement i think um 
So when we look at the door slammer thing, you know, I think there's a couple things. One, 273 mile an hour speed with the parachutes out. So let's just say with some with some safety that he was at least going 290 miles an hour, right? I think we can yeah. I think we can say that without even really pushing ourselves. Um, it went like it, 10, 107 or something from eighth mile to quarter mile. <laughs> something yeah. insane. No, just ridiculous. And so to me, you know, there, there's a couple factors. The first one is, and I don't know how much people have talked about it, but the tires were in horrendous shape after that run. They were chunked really bad and blistered really bad. So you mentioned the windshield trying to come in. You mentioned that, you know, we talk about the tires, which were, which were, brought to a place of performance they were never designed to be in the first place. Um, so the the answer is drag racing and drag racers through history have always fixed these problems, right? You put a fuel tire on it or you reinforce the body somehow. These are all things that can be done. Whether they should be done or not, maybe that's, maybe that's the big question. And I think when it comes down to brass tacks, if you put a 300-mile-an-hour pro mod next to a 300 mile an hour funny car, I do think the funny car is going to get more attention simply because yeah. of the way it looks, sounds, and sounds. I would love to see him running heads up, though. I mean, if, if imagine if we ever lived in a world, which I don't know if we ever will, but if we were able to live in a world where there was some sort of effectively an open, almost an old school throwback to the beginning of time, top eliminator, where if it's got a body on it, you know, if it fits, it ships, or if it has a body on it, it runs. I mean, something like that would be pretty great. I don't know how much – actually, I shouldn't say that. I'm not going to say who it is because it's out of respect for him, but there is somebody this year, uh, probably late summer, early fall, that has a car that is specifically built to do what Todd Moyer almost did in his car that is going to make a very serious attempt at, at four-second, 300-mile-an-hour full-body runs. And this is a car that has been built for the task, if you will, and I think some of the things that have happened over some of these other runs have have led to a couple of design changes. But cars complete, drivetrains complete, and um, I'm sure it'll be announced in the next, I don't know, okay, couple of months. This kind of thought that uh, I've always wondered, I guess I should say, that at a certain point, nitro, nitro stuff is just so unattainable. And I mean, Promont's kind of unattainable too, but it's it's not as unattainable as nitro. Uh, for example, if the three of us all got together, we could we could have a pro mod team. But we couldn't have a nitro team. You know, three salaries can make make a pro mod team. I don't. Th- I mean, I, don't, I mean, any more at a competitive level, I I'd I'd, I'd debate that. You honestly, need you need more. I would de- I would debate that. Yeah, I think I, I, you know, and I'm not. I just think it is what it is when you look at it. I mean, the. And I'm, you're certainly right about the fuel stuff. I mean, it's it's insane, right? I mean, the the part-time guys that come out, I love them, and the, the commitment they have is amazing. But when you're going to do this 22 times a year, it's just, just off the charts with seven to ten guys. But man, the pro mod thing, I mean, you get done building one of those things with an engine and a spare engine and then a couple of spare transmissions and maybe a spare rear end. We're we're a half a million in before we put anything in the truck, aren't we? Yeah, that's true. I mean, that that is true. And uh, but I guess my my overall point was, is that do you think that. Do you think that uh, NHRA will ever unleash the pro mods because they can go way faster than than what they're allowing them to go? And obviously, this was the problem with fuel for years and years and years and still is today. The re- the real reason other than the stopping distance yeah. is a tire can't hold up to now. I assume if if they said, hey, we want to go 350 miles an hour, someone's going to figure out how we're going to be able to do that. 
Agreed. The car can do it. The tire yeah. can't do it. Everything else can do it. Yeah, and and I do not necessarily think you're going to see pro mods. I don't think, in my mind, and, and this isn't anything that's written in stone or in a rule book or a secret NHRA book of you know tall tales anywhere, but I don't think anybody has a big desire to see and we, we almost did. I don't think they have a big desire to see 270 mile an hour door cars. I, I really think that the right. 250, 260 mile an hour range is probably where they would where they would have their feet in the sand. Um, that's just my guess. But I, I don't know. You know, when we talk about fuel cars and 340 miles an hour and, and don't get me wrong, the, the Goodyear guys have said 340. We're OK with 340. Like they've come out and said the tires engineered there and they've said that publicly. But to your point. It's like it's the it's the always slippery slope of drag racing. Well, hey, three forty one, right? Right. All of a sudden, it's all of a sudden at three fifty, right? And so, I do not, in my own mind, think you're going to see pro mods unleashed to the point where uh, they can do anything like what Todd Moyer did. Um, not legally, not legally. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Because let's be honest, was that car, is that just a legitimate pro mod car that ran 514? No. I was fixing to say there, there's got to be something no. different in downforce. It, um, it probably has. All over that car to keep I'm it sure planted it was that long. Absolutely as light as possible to actually physically work. And I'm sure it had all the boost. I got you. Yeah. But, oh, yeah. yeah I and think... it, it's at the end of the day, all hail the E-gate because that's what allowed that to happen. Absolutely. Huh. That e that e gate um, that I think they sold more of those in the ensuing 48 hours after Todd's run than they have since they invented the thing. Um, yep. And yeah, I think outwardly to speak to your point, I think outwardly Todd's car is 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 as pro mod as it gets. I mean, they're the body is the same that five star Camaro body that a lot of guys run. Um, but yeah, I think as we're talking about, you know, internally in terms of, of of stripping all the weight out of it, and you know they they went down at the snowbirds to kind of make a point because they hung a lot of weight on that combination and they went down there and still ran, you know, they had run like 231 at the, at the world street finals or world street nationals in Orlando. They put a bunch of weight on it for snowbirds and they came right back out and ran like 230 with it again. It's like, how do you, unless you tie it to a tree, I don't know how you slow it down, but yeah, that's an incredible car. You know, ultimately uh, that if you can, if you can make the motor, take it, nothing can really be faster than a turbo car because it can leave it however much boost that the track will take at all times where everything else, even subtly, it has to build up to it if it's crank driven. Yeah. And you, and at this point, like you're talking about with the E-gate, the, the infinite management you're being, you're being able to, and that's really what, you know, people ask like why turbochargers were not that popular for a long time. And, you know, for the, for us, it's just normal stuff now to last what, 10 or 15 years. But when you go back to the, their early quote-unquote modern turbo cars when Annette Summer was out trying her car out when Mike Moran first had his car out years ago the idea it was electronic fuel injection and boost management were the two things that allowed turbo cars to do you know what they were doing then and certainly what they do now so yeah the more the more finite and infinite control you get over the boost management the more competitive and and ultimately faster the things are going to be yeah. yeah you can you can go all the way back to uh it actually might be something that's on on your channel, actually. But wasn't it Buddy Ingersoll in the turbocharged six-cylinder Buick back in the day? Yeah. So I mean, the very first turbocharged car that that is historically recorded as winning anything of of uh, consequence um, was 1965 at the Winter Nationals. The um, uh, there were two brothers in California um, that had the Malico brothers. They had a Willys that had a small block Chevy in it with two air research turbos that were drawing through a pair of Carter carburetors. And they won 
uh, B-Gas supercharged class uh, now nearly 60 years ago with a twin turbocharged car. And, you know, Buddy Ingersoll in the 80s famously had, it was an ex-Warren Johnson Pro Stock car. Um, he worked with Buick and McLaren, and it had a, 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 a 3.8 liter effectively stage two V6, much in many ways similar to what was in the Indy cars at that time um, with turbos on it. And, you know, the big fallacy is, oh, NHRA banned it from Pro Stock. Well, they never allowed it in Pro Stock, but the IHRA did. And they allowed it for a, a one season, and then he made the finals in Bristol, barely lost to Bob Glidden, and uh, shortly thereafter, the, the turbos were no longer as welcome uh, in any pro stock anywhere. But, yeah, that was awesome. <laughs> no, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Great time here to get a, a chance for our marketing partners to have a few words here at the Going Bracket Racing Live community. Keep those questions coming in. I'll do the best that I can right after this break to at least get a couple of those out to Brian and see if we can get some answers, maybe put a couple smiles on some people's face. Don't go anywhere. Make sure you hit the like, the share, and uh, we'll return here in just a couple of moments. Thanks for joining. BRG Motorsports 3D Printed Racing Parts are able to provide you with whatever you desire to enhance your drag racing operation. Items like safety belt magnets, nitrous bottle holders, and even quick-release delay box mounts are able to be obtained from BRG Motorsports 3D Printed Racing Parts. Have a look at top-selling items such as helmet hooks and steering wheel hooks, which are proven to make it easier to maneuver throughout your race car. You can contact BRG Motorsports 3D Printed Racing Parts at telephone number 765-729-1177. Our third-generation slim wireless vehicle scale is worth the wait. You can read cross weight, side-by-side -side weight, and front and rear weight, in addition to the standard weight for each wheel and total vehicle weight. You can also view on the included backlit LCD screen, complete with control buttons. The full-size 15 by 15 inch aluminum scale pads are only 1 5 inches thick. Each pad can hold up to 1,750 pounds for a total scale capacity of 7,000 pounds. TSR Racing Products has everything you need to make your Power Glide Turbo 350, Turbo 400, and 727 transmissions the best they can be on the street or at the track. With exceptional products, customer service, and over 30 years of experience, TSR Racing Products is always available to help their customers with any of their transmission needs. In-house machining ensures you only receive the best products from TSR Racing. Visit TSR Racing Products at tsr-racing.com or give them a call at 800-394. 5889. All right, all right. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thanks for joining us here. Another episode of Going Bracket Racing. It's like 140 something, three, 143, I believe. And, uh, can't do it without you guys, of course, uh, being here with us live each event or, or on podcast form. We don't forget about you either. So thanks for listening in. And uh, if you ever have any questions, we do get we do get comments from our podcasters inside of our Facebook uh, inbox. So if you have any questions, you got any comments that you want to leave, send those on to us. Casey and I read that stuff and uh, we'll definitely bring up your points and comments uh, on the next live show. Crew Chief Pro, Proform Parts, Team 14 Motorsports, Ken Jones Performance, Driven Racing Oils, TSR Racing Transmission Products, BRG Motorsports 3D Printed Parts, 
8th Mile Apparel. If you want to get any of that GBR merchandise. A lot of fresh things coming off the press there. I think there's going to be some... Um, I don't think they're quite the uh, Stanley, the pink Stanley Cup that somehow craved, went crazy out in the country. I don't know what you guys thought about that Stanley Cup, but we got some GBR Cups coming out on there pretty soon, too. So, um, sure and that's all. They're half capacity, right? If it's eight months, they've got to be half the capacity. Yeah. Hey, maybe, <laughs> hey, maybe there's Stanley. You never know. Might have to no. rip, the, rip the logo <laughs> off. I don't know what to tell you, but... Hey, go ahead over there to 8th Mile Apparel. You'll be able to get it. And as always, those guys at your ad here, George and Casey, those two guys, man, they appreciate everyone being inside of the GBR community. If you would like to reach out to that community at any point in time, just feel free to get in contact with uh, Going Bracket Racing at any platform. We'll be more than happy to uh, get your product out to the GBR community. Getting back at it. And uh, I had a few questions here. I'm going to just scroll up, and they're still coming in, so... My chat will keep moving and I'll stop. But Brian Cook, uh, Brian Loans, <laughs> came with a question that says, what about Pro Mods running to 1,000 feet? I think he's saying as an unleashed car as well, kind of being more more or less unrestricted to the 1,000. Yeah, so, so I can tell you that um, you know, last year NHRA went to the Pro Mod teams and said, hey, uh, are you guys interested in, in moving to an eighth-mile format? They didn't necessarily talk about 1,000 feet. They talked to eighth-mile um, and I think the question was posed because really the NHRA series is the last quarter mile pro mod series that's left. Um, Northeast outlaw pro mod was, I think like second to last to make the switch over just a couple seasons ago. And you didn't have his vote to know. Um, and I don't think that was to protect their own interest. I think that, I think that the guys that are in that class want to keep it a quarter mile class. And yeah, you could, you could move it to a thousand feet and, and, you know, we know how this game works. You can move anything you want. You can move the goalposts where you want the goalposts to be, but eventually they figure it out. I mean, Mike Salinas went 300 miles an hour in the eighth last year. Right. So, you know, right. and so and so to to the point, we we still have in drag racing, thankfully, we still have in virtually every category that's heads up more horsepower than we can use. And the game has always been just figuring out how to use a little bit more. You make much more, and you figure out how to use a little bit more, and they will figure it out. So my own personal opinion, I'd love to I'd love for them to stay quarter mile. Yeah. Yeah, I think I feel the same way. We gotta have quarter mile pro mods somewhere, no matter what. And uh seemingly Casey and I talk about this quite a bit. Um, the fans do seem to like that eighth mile charge. Something sure. about fast door cars that look similar to what we might drive on the street moving that quickly through the eighth mile, and it's just even faster because the finish line's that much closer. So Definitely a good question. Thanks for that. A quick side note on that deal. I'm I'm sure you saw the uh, safety measures that Larry Jeffers built into Manny Bajinga's new uh, Mustang. Yes. Yeah. Do you think that's something that needs to be adopted in an HRA Pro Mod? Because it seems like when they turn around, that's whenever they lift because a wing is made for downforce, but then you turn around backwards just like an airplane. Now it's causing lift. Yeah, I think it's. I think the addition of the flaps, uh, the vent flaps that they put in, the similar to the NASCAR vent flaps. I think it's. A, I think it's a great idea. Um, and it's obviously one of those things that I don't really ever want to have to see Manny test it. You know, Manny lives like five miles from me. I've known the guy for like twenty years, and he's he's been at the front of a lot of safety stuff. Um, the flaps are the most notable part of that car, and he has some other stuff that he worked with Larry on that I think they're going to start talking about down the road. But um, 
I think it's cool. I think it's a great step forward. It does not visually change the car's appearance at all. It doesn't harm its performance at all. And if anything, exactly what you're saying. When we see these cars crash, you can almost textbook it. They move to the center of the racetrack or they move to the outside of the racetrack and they rotate. And as soon as they rotate, they're off to the races. So if you can create something that stops that lifting propensity when they get sideways, I'm all for it. Keep them on the ground. Yeah, yeah. Hey, another question coming out of longtime follower here is Kevin Little. How many NHRA Factory X cars are out there? Just oh, man, this, this is good. Um, so, you know, Factory X, obviously this has been a much slower process than anybody would have wanted. The class was announced. Uh, then every ship in the world went into port and nobody shipped any parts anywhere for like a year. So that slowed things down a lot. Um, but <laughs> they're going to make their season debut in Vegas this year. And my understanding is there's close, there's more than a dozen of them out there now. And they, a lot of them have come out of chassis shops. Uh, we know Chris Holbrook's car, the, the Holbrook car, I should say, was featured in the Ford Performance setup. That thing looks gorgeous. Turk's out there. We've seen Stanfield's car. Um, we're going to have a nice crop of Factory X cars to start the season with, and it's going to grow. Nice. Nice. Casey, anything on the fa on the YouTube side before we get back on track? Speaking to the uh, Factory X comment, we have uh, Racer 9622. Factory X should be the new pro stock. Drag and Drag Racer 4809. I agree. At least they look like real cars. I, man, but you I can't agree with of, both those comments. You can't get rid of the pro stocks, man. Here's my bid pro stock. Y'all need me to come pull. I can get it done. I can let off the tree, too. No. Um, can't get rid of the pro stocks now. But, I mean, I like the Factory X. Don't get me wrong. Man, I love yeah. me some pro stock. I mean, there's a clear argument to make on both sides. The, the, the first side of the argument is, well, the Factory X car is a lot closer to a factory car. It uses a factory-based engine, uh, has the factory dimensional body on it. Totally get all that. Um, the other side of it is we now have a pro stock category that's going to have like 24 cars, 25 cars at every race. Right. And it may not be your favorite class to watch, uh, so don't watch it. Uh, <laughs> you know that. I mean, it's like I don't. I this TV show shouldn't be on the air because this. I hate this TV show. Well, don't turn the TV show on. Um, yep. Not the drag racing TV show. You love that one, but yep. the other one. So, you know, I'm I'm literally working on a story right now for NHRA.com and a bunch of different pro stock stuff over the last couple seasons. And it is absolutely, you know, when we talk about the, how close these cars are matched, it is the closest human performance class we have in drag racing now, right? And it's almost like the car, as much as I, I don't, I'm not disparaging the car, but in pro stock, the driver has infinitely more effect on where they finish on a given day week or season than they do in a nitro car you know it just it just is i mean 2022 uh erica's average qualifying elapsed time she was low et average of the season in qualifying at 658.2 the next season 2023 her season average in qualifying 658.3 the next the next the number two average qualifier 658.6 the number three average qualifier 659.0 jeez Seven thousand. Seven thousand. No, we can't get rid of clo that close. And it's exactly what you just said. Yep. The element of human is is very much so relevant. And I think you can see it even through the TV set. Okay. The, a lot of these pro stock cars are equipped with all the good cameras. You can watch them do their thing going through their gears. All the way to the burnout, there is some type of mental mind mind game that that car is playing with you. So I gotta have it because that is that that feeds me a little bit watching somebody have to be machine like. 
I would just say this. If you're if you look at pro stock and you're like, well, I don't like pro stock because I don't like the cars. Do yourself a favor. Start the season and don't even care. Pick a person. Root for people in pro stock. If the cars if the cars are annoying to you, that's fine. But the drivers are what you should be in, what you should be following then. If it's like, well, they all have the 500 inch motor, they all this, they do. But it's the person behind the wheel that's going to make the ultimate difference here. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And that leads into my next question, sort of, kind of, because it's drag racing we're talking about. But is drag racing currently bigger than it has ever been, in your opinion? Um, you can use whatever metric you would like to in order to answer that question, in my opinion, because you may pull from things that Casey and I don't know that you've just been able to see being Brian Loans. You know what I mean? So how do you feel about that question? Um, I think it's in a in a participatory way. I'm going to say yes. And I'm going to say yes because there are more options and places to race of more different styles of cars than has ever existed. You know, it, it was not that long ago that you were a heads-up racer, a class racer or a bracket racer locally. Now you can be a local regional or national touring bracket racer. If you want, you can run national events, you can run divisional events, you can run the WDRA, the IHRA, uh, whatever other localized, the mid Atlantic dot 90 series, the central United States dot 90 series. You can run a radial car. You can run a big tire car. You can run a pro mod. You can run top sportsman. I mean, don't forget all the dragon drive stuff that is going right. on right now. Right. And then there's that. And then there's that. Now, you know, Dragon Drive, I was on the original Drag Week in 2005, the very first one we ever had. Starting at Kansas City International Raceway, there was like 39 cars on the first day. Globally, this year, there's going to be 32 Dragon Drive events around the world from Canada, Australia. They're doing one. They do one in uh, Sweden. They the Alaska. Alaska had their own Dragon Drive event last year. Wow. So, again, that takes us to that next level of 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 the participation side of drag racing. Like there is no excuse to not be involved. And that's, and then we even even mentioned testing two nights, just going to beat on your car and, and work on it and have fun. Grudge so, racing. I mean, grudge racing is huge in the Southeast. Massive. You want to go, uh, you know, 28, 10, five, you want to go the 44 bore spacing stuff. I mean, you can go right down the list and we, I didn't, I failed to mention out of uh, no disrespect. I failed to mention a PDRA. That's a whole series that didn't exist 10 right. years ago, whatever it was. Right. So, you know, if you wanted to run a pro mod back in 2010, you basically raced with the IHRA or you raced a couple of NHRA events a year as an exhibition class and then dipped in and out when you wanted to. But it's a totally different ballgame. It verges out there now, too. I mean, we've got yeah. we've got what places to go and race for yeah. just about every speed of race car. And then, yeah, great answer. And the other the other, the other side of it is, you know, on the like the kids don't like car side of it. Kids aren't into cars. I think it's it's a garbage argument. And I've said this before, but when when we were kids, because we're all old people now, when we were kids, we got our car magazines in the mail once a month and we ripped through them in two days. And then hopefully maybe uh, we saw Brett Kapner on Inside Drag Racing once or twice. Maybe we caught an NHRA national event. I got two teenage boys that they can flip on either their phone, their laptop, their t the TV, whatever, and drag racing is available literally infinitely All in any way, shape, or form they want to watch it. That's right. That's right. Hmm. Absolutely, man. It's, it's definitely on an upward trajectory. I think it's better than it ever has been. I think a lot of that is attributed to the just the simple fact that people figured out it was out there because of No Prep Kings. That's If there's one good thing about No Prep Kings, it's the fact that people are like, man, fast cars are cool. They're loud. They're, you know, and then 
all those personalities, yeah, they might be a little dramatized on the show, but that is really what happens at the racetrack a lot of times. Like there aren't a lot of people fighting at a bracket racing event, True. but every once in a while you'll get one. But True. going on to the next thing, if y'all haven't figured this out already, Brian is very into automotive and motorsports history. And I think your YouTube channel is just Brian Loans, right? Yeah, yeah, very creatively so, named. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. Well, you, you check out that channel and you'll you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. But I guess something that I just personally wanted to ask you is what intrigued you so much about motorsports of the past? Um, you know, to me, it's just to me, you can find a little about a lot of stuff and then it's tough to find a lot about anything. And that's what uh, it's it's kind of like the. The, the weaving through history and finding this stuff out and getting a little bit of depth to a story that maybe you know a little bit about. But I mean, I don't know. I've always just loved, ever since I was a kid, I've loved reading and I've loved history and and it all just ties together. And for me, like the drag racing side of it, um, you know, drag racing is like a, a very linear history. Like you can just plot the chart. You can, you can make a line graph with, you know, Dick Kraft's bug here and whatever it was, 1952. And then Doug Coletta's top fuel dragster here in, in 2024. And you can, you can pick out all those steps along the way. And, you know, the things that I guess make me most interested are finding the little slivers in time when something improved, like even if it only improved this much, like what did somebody figure out? And then how did somebody compound on that? Because really, everything you see in modern drag racing is a, just a compounding of decisions over time. Like, you know, radial cars, like, you know, I got my Mensa Motorsports shirt on cause Mark's a friend and I think it's a cool shirt, but you know, is radial racing what it is today without a guy like Mark Menser coming in from dirt track stock car racing, looking around going, you guys well, are doing this all wrong. There and was a lot. Yeah. There was a lot to be said about that because Jason line was a NASCAR guy. And he learned a lot of stuff in NASCAR that then applied to pro stock because they're running such a high RPM. Absolutely. So, you know, it is, again, it's like these accrued experiences that come in and, and move the ball forward down the field. Those are the things that, that really, um, that I love to kind of dig into and, and understand, especially in the past. It's, it's just, it's like building a puzzle backwards. You know, you, you kind of always want to figure out how you got to certain things, or, you know, if there's, there are certain historical stories like, the next uh, video I'm working on right now, there's you. I guarantee everybody here has seen the photos, but there is such an intriguing story behind the indoor drag racing they did in Chicago in the early 60s. You know, they had an, they raced, they drag raced inside a building uh, for three winters in Chicago. And we've all seen the picture of like Arnie Beswick's wagon in there or whatever, but it's like the actual story that people know this much of is, is going to be about 45 minutes long and it's absolutely phenomenal. So, it's that type of stuff. And just to go on your point, you mentioned Street Outlaws real quick. Like yeah, several years ago, it's probably 10 years ago now, when that thing, when No Prep Kings really started blowing up, I was on a show or something, and um, I think somebody had posed a question like, what's NHRA going to do about No Prep Kings? And it's like the small view of all this stuff in drag racing, the small view is if something is succeeding, that means something else is failing. And the, the elements you mentioned of No Prep Kings are absolutely accurate. Like, people got aware of what drag racing was. But the most important thing that series did was, and continues to do to this day, really, is to put a lot of people in the seats of racetracks. And we do not have a sport without racetracks. And we know, all of us know, how sensitive an issue this is right now with the threats that many of those places are under. So when when people ask a question like, well, what's NHRA going to do about no prep kings? It's like, hopefully give them a high five and thanking them for putting people into racetracks that we also need to race at. And it keeps them viable and healthy. 
So that's the one thing that annoys me sometimes about our sport is that if if our if one little tribe is doing better than you know if the other little tribe thinks they should, then it's a threat. Like nobody in the sport is threatening to each other. That's not the point of this whole enterprise that any of us are involved in. And at the end of the day, no no sanctioning body or series or whatever can exist if there's not a track to race at. Ultimately, that's that's the thing that always I've said that on this show a thousand times, and I beat the dead horse to death if it wasn't already dead. But the fact of the matter is, is that it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're John Force. It doesn't matter if you're Casey Beckmeyer. It doesn't matter who you are. If you're a guy who wants to get into racing and doesn't even have a car yet, if there's no track to race at, don't ever bash the tracks because if there's no track to race at, it doesn't matter who you are because there's nowhere to go. Yeah. And look, I've, I've thankfully been to a zillion of these places across the country and some of them are run exceptionally well and some of them are run exceptionally bad. And it's painful to be at a place that is, that is run badly because it's like, man, you know, um, when some of these places close and obviously there's outside factors when someone comes in with some crazy real estate offer or something, but a lot of times the worst enemy of a racetrack is itself. You know, if, if you have management and leadership that isn't fully invested in what's going on, they get angry and in turn, they treat their customers badly. And in turn, the customers go somewhere else. You know how this, this cycle works, but yeah, your point on racetracks is it. they're the, without that, none of this exists. Yeah, no question about it. That was definitely a uh, uh, interesting conversation we have there. And I definitely thank you for pointing out the fact that we need to support the racetrack uh, as yep. much as possible. Um, and piggybacking off of all the racing that we're going to be doing this year, a lot of these local tracks are starting to amp their game up quite a bit for their local racing program. One that sticks out to me and one that I hope gets modeled quite a bit is going to happen at Mid-State Dragway in Havana, Illinois, uh, where they're going to be running... I believe it's six weekends, ten thousand dollars per day. So Saturday and Sunday you're racing for ten grand, but at the same time inside of a points program. So um yeah. definitely glad to see that happening there. We've having a little bit of a technical difficulty here. I don't know if everybody can see Casey like I see him. I bet Brian sees it and just was like, I don't know what the heck's going on here. But Casey is like two faced right now on my screen. And um it's actually there pretty we go, man. Yeah, if you like scoot all the way towards your window, your camera would be like your you and the camera, right. and half your face is just like stuck. I so I, I can't fix that for now, guys. But uh, just thought I'd point that out there. I was definitely paying attention, but I was trying to fix whatever that is too. Um, so well, it's, a, it's his good half. It's his good half that's frozen. So that is his good half, though. Not well, if I have everybody. A good half. I believe everybody would disagree if they if you could see what we see, Casey. Everybody's gonna disagree with that. I mean, it's a still hey, photo, Casey. It's, it yeah. looks like it would be what's on your license. Yes. This shows this shows about this shows about Brian Loans, not about me. All right, don't worry about. It. So let's move to the next question. Um, uh, who was the most innovative innovative person in drag racing history, uh, in your opinion? And then what was the most important innovation to come Damn. to practice? Tough one, I know. It caught you off guard a little bit. That's a great question because that can go a trillion ways. Mm -hmm. uh, if we go from the promotional side, we can go to Jim Tice. I think Jim Tice at the HRA probably promotionally was one of the most innovative guys, um, if not if not the most innovative. I would put Bill Donor in that category as well, just the legendary races he put on that influenced generations of people going forward. Um 
mechanically, you know, Garlitz is the, I want to say Garlitz is the easy answer, but I, you know, and it's, everybody pins the one thing on him with the rear engine deal, but you know, he, he certainly was one of the greatest innovators of the sport. Um, but then how do we look past like the door car stuff? Like, how do we look past that whole side of drag racing? How do we look past, um, the, the Tim McCamuses of the world, the, the Tommy Mooney's of the world, the, the people who, the people who really, without Tommy Mooney, without Tim McCamus, without, uh, you know, Alan Pittman, without some of these real foundational chassis guys from back in the day, we don't have pro mods like we have them today. So, man, the most singularly innovative person in drag racing history. That is a very difficult question. Um, you can go all the way back to a guy like Scotty Fenn back in the 50s who started the idea of a commercially available uh, production line chassis that, you know, guys in Massachusetts ran Scotty Fenn chassis that were welded together in California. So, man, uh, you go to Tom Hoover, invented the, the Chrysler Hemi, right? If, if Tom Hoover doesn't do the 426 Hemi, what are we talking about today? A bunch of guys racing inline six flathead motors on fuel? I don't I don't know. I don't know what we're talking about. So right. if I can if I can make a composite person, it would be all those people in one. And in that would one. be the, that would be the most innovative person. <laughs> And so while we're watching Casey on the other end try to solve whatever he's got going on with his camera, I'm just going to throw one off the cuff, kind of something that I I feel for myself. Um, what would you say, and this is 100% opinion-based, what would you say was more beneficial to NHRA fuel class? Would we say the canopy inside of the dragster class or the automatic shutoff system that they're holding behind the race cars nowadays. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think um, that's a, I'm going to go with the shutoff system in that, you know, it's, we can't calculate stuff that doesn't happen, right? It's kind of funny. Like how much money did it save? Well, you can't really do the math on engines that don't explode. We know how much an engine costs that does explode. How many engines have been saved? How many, you know, how many crankshafts, how many connecting rods have been not beaten to death with a misfiring cylinder that a crew chief has shut off on an early qualifying pass? Um, honestly, since those things have existed, it has to be in the millions of dollars. When you think about how much this stuff costs and how often it needs to be replaced. So, you know, if you're saving a supercharger at $25,000 and in theory, saving one or two of those a weekend sometimes, all categories and we now do that 22 times a year plus however many years that system has existed that thing has had to have saved millions of dollars of parts 100 percent, 100 i'm just curious about that and i had a little bit of time while casey solved this problem which welcome back buddy uh i don't know if you probably heard that you probably heard the question as well but welcome back in here and uh thanks for that answer brian casey we're on number eight this is somebody you know this is a great question right here so Andrew Bostrom, the Bostonian. Okay. Yep. So we interviewed him at PRI. And by the way, if you guys haven't seen that, it's something I think it came out earlier this week or, or the week prior on either Facebook or YouTube. It's on both of them somewhere. So check that out because it's period correct NHRA 70s pro stock demon yep. that we were, of course, turned on to by Michael Beard by happily walking in. Oh, there's Michael Beard. Where's Michael Beard? By a Mopar, of course. So anyway... <laughs> What I wanted to ask was what what in your opinion was the most fascinating time in NHRA history? And if you had the opportunity to bring back one class from the dead, what would that be? Oh, that's a good one. Um, the most fascinating time, 
I would say the I would say the very like um right after the Nitro ban was lifted at national events, I would say from 1963 to 1965, 66 um, to me would be the most fascinating period because things rapidly, rapidly developed. I mean, you're talking, that's when twin disc clutches started getting used. That's when the tires started to improve. Um, that's when, you know, guys started showing up with nitro motors and full bodied steel cars that they had to run in fuel dragster classes because there's nowhere else to put them. Um, so that would be, that would be, a, a, that would be a time period I'd love to go back to um, and witness firsthand. And then what class to drag out of the, uh, to drag out of the dead. Um, you know, everybody says modified production cause it's awesome. You know, small block and big 50 pound flywheel and manual transmission that would be on the list. And look, I would not hate seeing fuel alters at national events. So oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> with the, with the stipulation that they couldn't be 125 inch wheelbase, they'd have to be shorter than that. They'd have to be legit old school, you know, 90 some inch wheelbase fuel alters, but I would, I'd pull them out of the, I'd pull them out of the depths. <laughs> fuel alters kind of run with funny cars. Like, wouldn't that be cool to see a little bit of different stuff where I've always thought that, and this was what I was kind of getting at earlier, never really got all the way there, but I've always kind of thought the nitro cars at this point are so fast and they're so capable that, I mean, a lot of times there's, there's been several years where the NHRA national record, the fastest car has been a funny car, not a dragster. Yeah. Um, so couldn't you just say all nitro runs together, essentially, like, wouldn't that be cool for the fans to say, I'm I'm a dragster guy or I'm an altered guy or I'm a funny car guy. And then they're all, you know, it could cause a whole bunch of hype, have a 32 car field or something. It would be cool. I mean, there's no, there's no way around. It would be cool. Um, you'd, ha you'd have to handicap the, the dragster somehow, just because right now you're looking at a, you know, a performance spread speed wise, of course, that the funny cars will outdo them basically on the rev limiter. They have more available rev limiter to use i think it's 500 rpm or so so that allows them to run the typically run the higher speeds um but yeah i mean an open an open fuel type class nitro chaos is doing it and it's cool if you've ever watched a nitro chaos event you know uh, you have funny car chaos and the nitro chaos side is as long as it's got nitro in the tank uh you're pretty much good to go and i think they did uh, edit the rules now that the engine has to be in the front so it's going to be all yeah. turns of slingshots and, and funny cars so well the meyer sisters were coming and beating up on everybody <laughs> yeah, and, and credit to them. I mean, great team, professional level team, and I respect the decision Chris Graves made there in the series because that is the type of series where, you know, I think that could run people off, and that's no yeah. disrespect to the Myers. They came in and raced as they always do at the highest level, but I do think, I think that might have scared the pants off of some off of some people, and you just don't want to see people, you know, run off like that. Yeah, I mean, you got to at least have a chance. Otherwise, you're not going to show up in a, in a heads up category whenever you have the, I mean, potentially a three tenths. I mean, that's that's a lot. It's not like a tenth. You know? No, no, it's a train length. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I got a I got a comment here from Michael Beard, actually, as we sit here and and discuss him in the very beginning. Michael Beard is saying when pro stock truck was having trouble. One of the founding drivers called Bill Bader Sr. and said, you need to give us a home in IHRA. Instead, Bill suggested that they stay in NHRA, but put nitrous on the trucks. We'll get thrown out is kind of was the answer, I believe, here. And he says, with this trademark sly smile, Bill re replied, but you'll be, you'll put on a show. Can you see... Kind of piggybacking off of uh, what, what he's trying to say there. 
the return of pro stock truck ever with some type of an additive such as a turbo or nitrous enhanced. I mean, now we're basically just talking about a small block pro mod at that point. You know what I mean? I think there's a redundancy to me. There's a redundancy there. And I think, you know, I think there was a redundancy in the creation of the class, you know, pro stock truck was obviously a, at the time, a response to NASCAR, the craftsman truck series when they first came in and that became, you know, a thing and it had its moment in the sun. I, the inner workings of its of its closure as a pro class, I know were a big mess, and I don't know any of the inner workings of it. Um, but I do enjoy seeing them in comp. You know, every once in a while we see one roll up as a, a pro stock truck uh, automatic, or even this this the correct you know stick shift transmission in them. But um, yeah, pro stock truck with a power adder to me is a a small block. Another pro mod. Yeah, yeah, that's a great answer. I just wish I seen more of them. You know what I mean? The pro stock. Any truck. I'm, I, I have a truck as a bracket car. I'm a door trucks rule fan. If I can push trucks to the front, I will. Uh, literally or or whatever it takes. Physically, if I have to do that too, I'll push it to the front. But um, <laughs> is there a reason you would think that we don't see very many pro mod, pro stock style trucks or pro mod trucks out there? Because I can't name one. Yeah, I think they just give up too much aerodynamically anymore. Um, you know, a bed, you know, just the physical dimensions of those things. And even though, you know, bodies are all shrunk down and everything else, I just, I feel like when we're, when we're talking about the performance of those things now and, and listen, that's why did everybody go to that same late model Camaro body? Cause it was, cause it's the slickest thing going and, and you can make all the rules you want by rewarding people a weight break to run a Willie's body or this, that it, it it's, it's not going to move the needle until somebody comes out with something better, you know? And that's an interesting thing where it's like the, the professional racing is different than other forms of racing, right? Like, like a, a professional team is going to look at what their best equipment is to try to win the race. They don't necessarily care what shape it is. They don't care about your feelings towards 69 Camaros or 2023 Camaros. What they care about is that that thing is two or three mile an hour faster and a couple of hundreds faster through the end of the racetrack than anything else. That's so true. that's what they want to have. No, that's a fact. That's a that's a 100% fact. Yeah. Ah, no, Casey, man. We're coming up on my last question here, I think. And that question is, there are a lot of people who would like to make a career in drag racing. I would be one of those people. Uh, <laughs> being on the premises at all these major events, could you speak a bit about how many more opportunities um, that there are to work within motorsports that people sure. might not know about. Yeah, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of ways in. Um, it seems like it's a pretty closed off deal, but there's a lot of ways in. Uh, obviously my way was on the media side. Um, if you're somebody with a commercial driver's license or somebody who is willing to get one, that is your first, that is your first golden ticket into the world of, of professional drag racing. And you know, the fact of the matter is even a lot of the pro mod teams now have guys that work on the car and drive their rig. Most of the time, the drivers are at their business doing what they're doing and they're flying into the racetrack and their crew guys are getting there and setting stuff up. So even if they're traveling, not in a tractor trailer, but a big, a, a coach that's longer than a tractor trailer, um, typically they have a, a, you know, professional driver in that thing. So the, the most foundational thing I could tell you is, is the CDL route as far as if you ever wanted to work on a team or even... I'll be honest, work for a sanctioning body like the NHRA hires people that have CDLs because we have tractor trailer trucks that have to go down the road. And your only job isn't driving the truck. 
you know, these are guys that do various functions over the course of the, uh, the typical race weekends, whether they work on the, you know, side of racetrack preparation, they do like facility stuff, whatever. Um, and then, you know, I know a load of guys who have gone to work in the hospitality in hospitality roles to become crew guys. That's, that's the other kind of new pathway that's in. If you don't have the CDL, yes, you have not woken up in the morning and ever dreamed about serving macaroni at lunchtime. But if you go in there with the stated goal of, I want to work on a race car, but if I have to serve macaroni until somebody else quits or is fired, and then I can work on the race car, that is something that all these teams appreciate. Um, there's a, a multitude of people on those teams right now that, that took the long way in. And most of the time, if you're motivated to be a crew guy, there's enough shifting around and movement over the course of a year that you're probably going to get off the, the bread line, so to speak. You're going to get off slinging rolls at lunch and actually get to get to turn wrenches and doing what you want to do. Um, those are just two ways. And the, and the third way is like work at your local racetrack. Like all these places are always looking for people. And that is the most valuable experience I ever got. Like working at New England Dragway as a kid and, and at Lebanon Valley, like you simply learn how to be around the racetrack. You guys know this because you've been doing it a long time, but how many times do you see people who are not really accustomed to where they're at, just not paying attention or wandering around and they're not looking in the right place or whatever. Like when the time comes, if you have worked at your local track and put in the time, if something opens up, you walk into that with a load of experience. You understand where you're supposed to be, where you're not supposed to be. You understand what the whole racetrack mentality is. Eyes up. You know, you, you don't walk in there totally green. So, you know, we talked about this before we went on air, but get in when you where you fit in. And, and that really is the way it works in motorsports. Like you can find a way in using whatever applicable skills you have and use those skills to kind of navigate where you want to go. And there's a lot of skills to be learned by running a racetrack. For example, I live right down the road from Galat Motorsports Park, one of the premier bracket racing facilities in the entire country. But the thing is, uh, like Galat, they have monster trucks there. They have tractor pulls there. They have big money bracket races there, a weekly program there. PDRA goes there twice, I think. Um, you know, NHRA has a divisional event there. Think about just being involved with that, how much you can learn and just your life skills that you learn by dealing with all the sponsors involved, dealing with all the people involved. And then that could be a stepping stone to a very big time job in life. If it's not at that track, it could, it could translate somewhere else. All the things that you can learn, that would be, and you could get in working there. That's a job you could never get offered in real life. Had you not been a college graduate, something like that in that particular field. So you can learn a lot of life skills just being around the track and the people you meet by being around the track. Those big haulers weren't paid for by, you know, just Correct. kicking rocks, you know? So there's a lot of money out there and a lot of business owners out there, but Brian, man, we appreciate you spending this last hour with us and everything. I'm coming on the show. Uh, who do you have to thank before you get off here? You know, I, I, I got to thank you guys for, for having me on. I, I love the, these conversations. I think we touched on a lot of great points. I'm, uh, I'm, obviously very excited for the NHRA season to kick off. I think the, you know, us street national showed, uh, showed us once again, that the pro mod world is as strong as it's ever been. And guys like Lyle Barnett coming in back full time with, with Tidwell for 24 in the, in the NHRA series is a great thing. But, you know, uh, I guess the last thing I'd say is, um, I think a lot of times we like, we clutch our pearls and we rub our rosary beads cause we're afraid about drag racing. And, and it's like one morning, wake up and tell yourself that this is a healthy, strong sport. And the more the more that we believe that of ourselves, the better off we are, because there is a racetrack getting built in Jacksonville right now. 
Obviously, Flying H Drag Strip's getting built outside of Kansas City, and it doesn't replace anything that's closed down, especially if it's your local track. But the more often we wake up and stare at the sky and wait for it to fall down on top of us, the more we're going to bring it on ourselves. So if you're watching this, my inspirational message of the day is drag racing is healthy. Act like it's healthy. Carry yourself like it's healthy and enjoy it for what it is. That is all. <laughs> that is all. Yeah, that is perfect way to end this show today, guys. We thank everybody for joining in, leaving your chats, your comments, hitting that like and share button to get your friends and family uh, into the community as well. Thank you, Brian, for taking time out of your busy day. Sure, we'll see you soon, whether you like it or not. All we got to do is turn on the television set, crying out loud, and uh, watch a little NHRA. So on behalf of GBR, thank you again. And everyone else, we will see you guys next Tuesday.